Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, recorded on February 4th, is an interview with Vicki Bean, who's the Deputy Mayor of New York City for Housing and Economic Development. I wanted a conversation to explore, in particular, what New York has done during COVID to protect and sustain its urban fabric, and which of these changes might have some permanence in the evolution of the city. To be honest, we had so much to talk about, including Vicki's amazing personal story, that this was only a survey course around this question of long-term changes to the city, and a theme that I know we will return to in future episodes around New York, but also as an ongoing theme for many of our future guests. Again, the questions of when we bounce back, what are we bouncing back to? This episode is in some ways a part two of a prior conversation that we had about two years ago on Leading Voices with Vicki's predecessor, Alicia Glenn, when she held the same position. And it's also bookends with what will be our next episode, a conversation with Robin Hughes, who runs a nonprofit housing developer in Los Angeles. I'm looking forward to the contrast and conversations between our two major cities on each coast, each the poster child of COVID in different phases of the pandemic and also of two cities like the rest of us struggling with a housing crisis. We did not get to spend much time on her personal story, but I love the narrative of Vicky's growing up in a small town in Colorado, indeed a uranium mining town with its own land use challenges, to law school in New York, to a Supreme Court clerkship where she met her husband who was then clerking for Thurgood Marshall. I feel like we're sharing history here back to New York, where this young person from rural Colorado is as much a New Yorker as anyone else. That's one of the special things about New York. To running the Furman Center for Real Estate and Urban Policy at NYU to her latest roles in government. I'm watching the Annie Leibovitz Netflix show that riffs so much on New York and New Yorkness. That's in my mind as we were having this conversation. One of the consistent marks of leading voices has been the length of most of these conversations, and I'm giving you a soft apology, although this is just the way it is. For a while, I aspired to economy in these conversations and more rather than less editing of the discussions. I'll admit that never really worked for me. I like to stretch out in the conversations with our guests, dive a bit deeper into some of the surprise rabbit holes, and leave in the unfurling of some of these thoughts and stories versus just the sound bites. I've stopped fighting this style, which is pretty now baked in. But I'm always happy for your feedback on the conversations, on guest curation, or other thoughts regarding the show to my email at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. As always, my thanks to my colleagues at Terra Search Partners for supporting Leading Voices. I will say that a hallmark of Terra Search's approach is similar to what I just said about these interviews. In our work as search professionals, we have to let the wisdom and nuances of our clients and our candidates unfurl and evolve through the process of search. It would be nice if searches were always a straight line, economical, transactional process. But since our business is all about the human endeavor, our success and value add is often subject to the meanderings and surprises of a distinctly human nature, making for a highly iterative process. Maybe that's why I love both leading Terra Search and hosting Leading Voices. Always something to learn and almost always surprises and wisdom opportunities along the way. I hope that you enjoy this episode and welcome you to share this conversation and others in the series with your friends and colleagues. Please subscribe. And if you have a few minutes, please rate us on iTunes. Thanks. And please enjoy the conversation with Vicki Bean. I am thrilled to have you on the conversation today. I've been looking for someone to talk to about what's happening to our cities during COVID and the changes because of COVID and then the changes that might persist afterwards. In particular, thinking about urban fabric, restaurants, economic development, of course, housing, which is one of our core topics and one of your core topics. But I'm so curious about the other ones as well. So I want to have a holistic conversation about that stuff. And for that reason, thrilled to have you on the show today. Thrilled to be here. Can you just briefly tell us what your role is in government, how it might have changed during COVID, just so that we understand the position from which you come? Sure. So my role prior to the pandemic was I have a team of over 25 
agencies, nonprofit corporations, special commissions that work to provide safe, quality, affordable housing in vibrant neighborhoods mm-hmm. that are enriched by arts and culture and parks and all the amenities that make life in cities so wonderful. Mm-hmm. So that's part of what we do. And the other part of what we do is try to really attract jobs by using our incredible talent base, the quality of life in the city to bring jobs into the city. So I think of my 25 agencies as really being about two sides of the same coin, right? One is how do we make affordable housing? How do we make good neighborhoods? And then on the other side, it's how do we make those neighborhoods be places of opportunity which involves bringing jobs, bringing careers, bringing training opportunities, that kind of thing. So that's the range of what I do. And it's wonderful because the portfolio encompasses everything from the New York City Public Housing Authority, which is the city's largest landlord with 175,000 homes across all five boroughs, all the way to the mayor's office of media and entertainment, which tries to bring film to the city, but also tries to provide job opportunities and career training internships for underserved communities to bring people into film production, other kinds of media production, and also has what we call our nightlife mayor, who basically mediates disputes between nightlife establishments like bars and restaurants that are open late and the surrounding neighborhood. So all in between those two things is my portfolio. How do you manage all that? Do you stay like super high level? Are you a great manager of 25 things at once juggling or is it vision kind of talk about how you get through all that in the day? So, I mean, obviously there's a certain amount of just keeping the trains running and putting out the fires that come out. But I do think that one has to have a very strong overarching vision mm-hmm. and my values, my overarching you know, value vision is that everything that we do has to be working towards making New York City both more livable and more fair, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's my big picture. That's my you know, three things that I've got to get done, but it applies to each and every one of my agencies and that's the lens that I look through. The other thing that I really try to do and I, I think is one of the things that makes this more coherent than it might seem is that I, I'm a natural born connector. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I remember soon after I was appointed deputy mayor, I was meeting with my parks commissioner and he was telling me about a program that we have where we hire people who have received public assistance. We hire them in the summer to help maintain our parks Mm -hmm. and we train them how to be, you know, gardeners, how to be lawn care folks and all of that. And I said, well, are you hiring any of the folks out of my NYCHA, my public housing? And they said, oh, we never thought of that. I connected those two parts of my portfolio. And now we've actually placed hundreds of the people that Parks has trained over in NYCHA to help maintain the NYCHA grounds. Of course. And we've put lots of our NYCHA residents who didn't have jobs into that training program. So my mantra of the day is, am I working towards those big picture visions? Mm -hmm. And am I making sure that everything is working as synergistically as possible? And I'm making those connections. Because those connections and synergies have lasting effect. Absolutely. In in your job, The other way to look at your job is one, like a mayor, what will this mayor have been known for? What will this deputy mayor have been known for? Because you only have three, four years at the apple, no pun intended, so that during your regime, some real change has occurred. Absolutely. And so I've worked very hard. My team has worked very hard to really make sure that we leave a bunch of structural changes, right? Structural changes that will... Mm -hmm help inform what the city does going forward, that shift it dramatically now, but also that are foundational so that they're in place for the next administration and the next after that. So a good example of that is, you know, we have really tried to drive towards 
greater equity in how we spend our money. Mm-hmm. So one example uh, is we looked at across our parks, we looked at where capital investments had been made in our parks across the city. Mm-hmm. And we realized that there were almost 200, more than 200 actually, more than 200 parks in the city that had not seen any significant investment in two decades. Mm-hmm. And it won't surprise you that those parks were often in low-income neighborhoods, in people of color neighborhoods, and yet they had gotten no rehab, no updates for two decades. So we said, okay, those are the ones that we're going to focus on, as opposed to the ones that have the most energetic electeds, the ones who have the greatest political pressure, those kinds of things. And so over the years, this is what we call our community parks initiative. Mm -hmm. Over the years, we've already invested more than 200 million in those parks. Mm -hmm. We've completely rehabbed about 50 of them, and we've done very substantial rehabs to more than 100 of them so far. So that way of looking at the world, of asking, okay, are we spending our money equitably? Where have we been spending it? Where have we not been spending it? Are there corrections that we should make there? I think is the kind of work that we need to do, and that will be our legacy. It makes total sense. It's interesting. It was it. I've only gotten through half of the Robert Moses book, Power Broker. I apologize to everyone for that. And I can quote the first half all the time. But it was interesting. The turning point in the story for me was he was kind of getting more and more evil. But the turning point was really when you realize he was not building parks in black neighborhoods, period. And then you realize, okay, boom, the goodness of of this overly aggressive approach to having accomplished things hasn't turned yet. But there you saw that he was building in New York, not for everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we do it. I mean, in his case, I think the evidence shows that there was some intentionality, right? But mm-hmm. we often do it unintentionally. And so when I ask my team to tell me, okay, well, where are we spending our housing capital dollars, right? And are we spending it in, so for example, this year, the pandemic year, we really doubled down and said, are we spending it in the neighborhoods that have been hardest hit by the pandemic? Are we spending it in the neighborhoods where there is the greatest housing instability? What are the metrics that we're using to figure out what we're going to prioritize? Because Mm -hmm. we've got in our housing finance pipeline, we've literally got six years of projects backed up because we've we've just pushed so hard and excited so many people about Mm -hmm. um, building affordable housing. But so you have to make priorities. How are we going to make those priorities and what are you doing intentionally and what are you doing unintentionally? Are you asking yourself the right questions Mm -hmm. about where you're spending your time, where you're spending your money? And I I think those kinds of, like I said, sort of foundational attention, intentional attention to equity issues is one of the legacies that this administration certainly will leave. That's fantastic. And I'm going to read something from your job description, but Part of your purview is to spur recovery from the current economic crisis by investing in the city's preparedness for future health emergencies and working to improve public health across all New York City neighborhoods. So you've had a big mandate during COVID directly related to health. Talk about that, and then we'll get to the fabric of communities and changing of city life. So it's a great question. Public health is not in my portfolio. It's not in my purview. We are blessed with an incredible Department of Health that has an international reputation. We've got the biggest public health, public hospital system Mm -hmm. in the nation. So we we have an enormous public health infrastructure. Mm -hmm. But what we realized during the pandemic is because of the inequities that the pandemic laid bare, we realized how much more we need to do to get our population to be healthier, to get Mm -hmm. all of our residents across all of our neighborhoods to be healthier. Mm -hmm. But we also realized how much of an economic opportunity it was to build upon the strengths of the city, the fact that we have this incredible Department of Health, the fact that we've got this incredible public health system, all the private hospitals and the universities and the research labs and we had invested heavily 
over the last seven years in life sciences. We had invested more than a half a billion dollars to help bring life sciences to the city. Mm -hmm. And that was in, in play and rolling out. And what we realized during the pandemic is we could build on all of that, become more of the public health capital of the nation or the world, and use both our attempts to make our population healthier and attempts to make the city and other cities better prepared for whatever health emergency comes next. Another pandemic, God forbid, mm -hmm. a heat emergency, whatever comes next, we need to be better prepared. And that brings good jobs to the city, which the city needs always, but especially needs to come back from the economic crisis that this pandemic has caused. So that's what made us team up with our health folks mm -hmm. to try to figure out well, what do we need to do to attract the kind of research talent, public health talent, and the kind of research, education, product development, et cetera, that we need to bring in in order to be better prepared. And how much of that is about the investing in the businesses that do that, mm -hmm. like life science business that looks at new medicines versus mm -hmm. the infrastructure to deal with the next crisis, the day-to-day -day infrastructure, how it gets delivered. Because I find that delivery of right now is where we're stuck as much as the research intellectual capital part of that. Yeah. So I think it's really both. I mean, we announced that we were going to set up what we've been calling the Pandemic Response Institute. Mm -hmm. We paired with the Rockefeller Foundation, which is all also putting enormous thought and energy into improving public health and improving pandemic responsiveness. We brought together an incredible group of about 30 experts from around the country to talk about, well, what, what should a city like New York do to be better prepared? Mm -hmm. And how translatable is that to other cities? Is it, you know, can we kind of design a pandemic response in a box type of idea that other cities mm -hmm. can then take? And it's fascinating because it's everything from, you know, genomics surveillance and how we should take the fact that we are a global entry point for so many people into the United States. Mm -hmm. Should we be doing more at our airports to detect, right, viruses as they come in? So it's got that heavily scientific, heavily research-based aspect of it, mm -hmm. but it also spans all the way to the other side of but we have a lot of people who aren't vaccine ready, who are hesitant to take a vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. And so how do we work in communities? How do we have the messenger about vaccines be somebody that they relate to, somebody that they can trust? So it's everything from the science back to the on the ground work with members of a community to make that community healthier and better prepared. So. Obviously, we're going to have to figure out where New York City has the best comparative advantage at different points on mm -hmm. this continuum of things that need to be done. And that's the exercise that we're going through right now, is really trying to figure out what builds on the life sciences that we have, what builds on some of the strengths of the city. I mean, right. there's no city in the United States that's got more diversity. So if you want to find out how to work with vaccine-hesitant people, there's mm -hmm. no better place than New York to experiment with that, right? Mm -hmm. But we've got to figure out our sweet spots versus the needs and make right. a marriage. And how much of this, I'm going to do a Venn diagram on our video screen, but how much is there an overlap with something like a, a Sandy event? Because mm -hmm. it's a crisis, it actually is a health crisis too, or the next blackout or brownout or whatever that is, or even the terrorist attack, but let's leave that one aside. Is there like a 50% overlap of knowing, of having the muscle memory and systems in place to deal with it with a pandemic? Or am I putting unrelated things together that shouldn't be? No, and New I, York gets I, this all the time, right? This Every 10 years, you're going to get something. Yeah. Thanks for that. <laughs> um, but um, look, I mean, we, when we have described what we're trying to accomplish. We've talked in terms of the next health emergency, which the scientists predict is more likely to be about climate change than, mm -hmm. than necessarily about pandemics, right? The heat emergencies, the weather, extreme weather emergencies like a Sandy. 
And so one of the things that we've done is, again, trying to build on what your strengths are. Mm-hmm. We've taken Governor's Island, which is an amazing, amazing island that looks out onto the Statue of Liberty, looks out onto downtown Manhattan, looks out onto Brooklyn. It's an, a, you know, just an amazing space mm-hmm. that is out in the ocean, or at least Close enough. the entryway from the ocean, right? And has space to do a lot of work on climate adaptation. So we are in the middle, actually, of a rezoning process to rezone uh, that part of the island to allow it to become a center for climate adaptation, climate solutions. And what we envision, and we're going to issue an RFP later this spring, but what we envision is folks coming in to do research, to do to actually do experimentation. We, we have drawings of how we could be using the interface between the ocean and the island to experiment with a range of solutions about adaptability. And at the same time, we're trying to use that to, again, train people for the jobs of the future, for wind energy jobs, for climate technology jobs, for property technology that will make buildings better suited for climate change, those kinds of things. So again, we're using that to try to build on existing strengths and existing assets, but do it in a way that helps us bring in good jobs and that helps us train our workforce for the jobs that will be coming, the jobs that will will mark the city in the next generation, as well as the jobs that are here now. Got it. So let's pivot the conversation and talk about from this big picture kind of to neighborhoods and what's happened to our neighborhoods in COVID. People are working from home or not able to work from home. Restaurants are closing. Streetscapes are changing. Streets are closed. Theaters are closed. They may not come back. How do they bridge the gap to when things come back to normal? So Mm. I'll let you start to talk about how one attacks that stuff both during COVID to stabilize it and what those changes are. And then we'll be thinking about what will persist and maybe in a better way. So look, I think that one of the things that the pandemic certainly taught us is any city should be doing emergency management, right? We should be thinking about what kinds of emergencies could affect the city and how can Mm -hmm. we be better prepared for them? And how can we have plans and processes that we can uh, swing in easily? The thing that the pandemic showed, and and it's true, it was true somewhat of Sandy as well, but the thing that the pandemic showed is just how reliant cities have become on supply chains that may not hold up in the event of a pandemic or other emergency, right? So we obviously, there was a lot of attention paid to the supply chain problem with personal protective equipment, right? Mm -hmm. But it went far beyond that, right? So we immediately had to worry about, well, how are we going to get food into the city if the workers at Hunts Point, which handles a lot of our produce coming in, Mm -hmm. right? If they can't come to work either because they're quarantined, they're sick, they can't get on a subway because the subway is down, Mm -hmm. how are we going to get our people food, right? Mm -hmm. How are we going to get the kinds of supplies like PPEs, that we need in order to deal with this pandemic. And I think one of the things that we learned is it's so important to have agencies and a workforce that's incredibly flexible, that's incredibly creative, that's willing to take risks and make decisions on the turn of a dime. And that's what you need to be able to to swing in. But we also saw how much we need to have diversity in our workforce and diversity in our businesses. So we were able to get through all of that in that period last March when New York City was the epicenter and the beginning, really, of the crisis in the United States. We were able to get through all that because our Economic Development Corp, which just makes it its business to be creative and flexible, was able to then turn to the people who usually are making costumes for Broadway and use them to make face masks for our doctors and nurses, right? They put together a a manufacturer who usually makes the 
fancy electronic signs in in our subways, used it to pair him with doctors from some of the hospitals around the city, from coders that were actually a specialized form of coding that had to be flown in from California, and put them in a room. And they basically came up with a form of a ventilator (laughs) that could work, given that we were about to run out of ventilators. And that, that of course, could have been life-defining for people. So being able to swing in high-tech manufacturers, low-tech manufacturers, our garment industry, our Broadway, not just the costumes, but also the the set manufacturing, being able to pull all those folks in and say, we've got a supply chain problem. We need this Mm -hmm. and we can't get it. Can you figure out how to make it? Can you switch your processes from whatever to make masks or to make hand sanitizer or to make vents, ventilators? Mm -hmm. So that muscle memory Mm -hmm. of how to be flexible and how to be creative and how to make connections again, like it it took somebody at EDC to say to themselves, hey, what about those folks who are tenants in our South Brooklyn Marine Terminal or our Brooklyn Navy Yard? We know that they are doing X, Y, or Z. Can we swing them in to give what we need? That's the muscle memory that you need. Uh-huh. It's interesting. It takes and government doesn't like to behave that way because government is by nature conservative and protective of their jobs. And even the electives might be, but the appointeds may be those who are least protective of their job because they know it's temporary and be willing to take the risks to think quick and even look stupid and get it wrong, which you're going to have to do. You definitely are going to have to do that. And that is a a skill. It's mm-hmm. a mindset that you have to get used to. I mean, you know, I was getting calls at all hours of the day and night saying, okay, we think we can, you know, make test kits so that we can start right. testing more people more quickly, but I need $10 million to set it up. Uh-huh. Will you authorize that? Right. Uh-huh. And you can't be conservative here. No, you got to go for it. So, That's in a crisis. So talk again, I'll keep focusing on the question of kind of our street life, our urban fabric, restaurants, how many go out of business, how many can be saved in some way because we don't want them really to go out of business. And people who work there are your diverse people to begin with or folks of of not economic means. So kind of talk through that specific case study if you can. So, I mean, our restaurants are critical to what makes New York so energetic and so Mm -hmm. much fun. And, and they do employ, you know, hundreds of thousands of people often, as you say, low income people of color. So saving our restaurants was mission critical from day one. Mm -hmm. First of all, we needed the restaurants to help provide people food, right? Right. And they swung in uh, very quickly to start making food that got delivered to the essential workers in hospitals to getting food to homebound seniors, that kind of thing. And so they, they swung in quickly to do that. Mm-hmm. But we knew that we needed to do whatever we could to save them. So what we did was to say, okay, not safe to be indoors. New York City sidewalks are notoriously crowded, right? But can we take over part of the sidewalk mm-hmm. in order to let the the restaurants move out into the open mm-hmm. air? That wasn't enough right and so then we were like okay let's take over that lane of the Uh street can we do that and as you can imagine that's highly controversial Uh and will i'm sure continue to be highly controversial but it's saved i mean we estimate that it's saved at least a hundred thousand jobs we have almost eleven thousand restaurants that are participating so they have built out in the street street bed or on the sidewalk. Uh Um, And it's saved, you know, just an enormous number of those restaurants and saved a lot of people's sanity because, as you know, you're cooped up all day on Zoom calls. It's really helpful to be able to get out and see some people, even if you can't have a drink with them or sit down and have a meal with them. To at least see other people having fun at a restaurant Feels is, good, um, yep. lifts your mood, right? Mm-hmm. But also the restaurants did an amazing job. They put lights up, they put plants up, it's festive. 
in my neighborhood, the cello player comes out on, in an, on another street, the jazz band comes out. If you look down our streets right now, they, you know, they're just full of bright lights and, and fun things going on, even right now. I mean, in the middle of 18 inches of snow, it's restaurant week in New York. And uh-huh. so my husband and I have been going out and getting takeout every night for, for restaurant week, which is $20.21 for a wonderful meal. And we went out the other night to pick up our order. And I was amazed. It was like 25 degrees. And the restaurant outside was completely full of people all bundled up, but having a good time getting out of their apartments, you know, hopefully seeing people in their pandemic pods. But it's just, it's reinvigorated the street and been really important, I think, for people's mental health and saved lots and lots and lots of workers and the restaurants. Mm -hmm. So the next stage, I think, is going to be critical. We just got permission from the state to allow restaurant workers and food delivery folks to be vaccinated. So Mm -hmm. that's a huge deal. Mm -hmm. And we're very much looking forward to getting the supply that will allow us to really roll that out. Mm -hmm. But it's been so popular that We've made it permanent, and we are now starting a rezoning that will allow that to be just a permanent takeover of the streets subject to, you know, some kinds of restrictions. And I think two things were were really important about that. One is that it did cause us to confront an issue that has been brewing in the city and really around the nation for more than a decade, which is who do streets belong to, right? Mm -hmm. Are they for cars or are they for bicycles or are they for pedestrians or are they for the local businesses? What is the right mix? Mm -hmm. And we've had that conversation in a much more real way, given the different demands that have been placed. And I think that conversation has really helped move the city forward on that question. And and I expect that we will see a much different balance than we've seen in the past. But the other thing that it helped us do was it helped us get out of our own way, get out of other people's way, because the charge from the mayor, and he's very good at really pushing you to do things better. The charge from the mayor was, I talked to the guy down the street at my local restaurant. I asked him how he was feeling about our you know, open restaurants program. And he said, I'm just trying to survive. I don't have time to do any of your bureaucratic nonsense. I don't think I'll be able to participate because it'll be too difficult. So the next day the mayor comes in and says, make it easy, right? My guy, I think his name was Lenny. I can't remember. My guy has to be able to, in a coffee break, fill out all that he needs to fill out, get the permits and be ready to roll. You guys do it. And so it really changed the way we thought about how do you do a permitting process? How do you work with people so that you can show them what they need to do instead of a whole bunch of back and forth and paper being you know, traded back and forth? And that, I think, is also going to move forward into a whole bunch of what the city does. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because you talked before about what remains, what, <laughs> what become new things that persist not both post-COVID, but also post your position here, and what can you put in place that lasts? And that may be one of them. And it's interesting that you also describe COVID being, these discussions were happening, but mm-hmm. they were going slow and they were battles, but COVID blew it away and said, could we do it? Now maybe it is permanent. Yeah. I'm thinking of Paris, right? When you describe this, I'm thinking of the best of New York and the best of Paris at the same time. And you can accomplish that. It's, I mean, it's magical in some places. It's just magical and so needed right now to boost people's spirits. The other thing we think about relating to this in New York are the arts. And no one's been able to make a living in the arts or have those institutions be there. So how have those institutions persisted through this quiet period of time? And are you able to support that in some way so that when we can reopen theaters, not just the big ones, but the small ones, community theaters, whatever, off-Broadway, how does that, how's that going to still be there? And gosh, I want jazz clubs. So talk about that. I mean, we're critically concerned about our arts and culture. We have been 
trying to support them financially. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a problem that goes way beyond the city's capability. We're very excited about the Save Our Stages money that was in the last stimulus bill. We, we hope there will be help in this new stimulus bill that's being discussed as well. Mm -hmm. So we have tried to direct resources. We have tried to use our arts and culture folks wherever we can for other kinds of things. So, you know, can we use them um, for childcare um, centers to, mm. for our emergency childcare? Can we use them for blood donation? Lincoln Center was a blood donation center last week. We've tried to work with them to figure out ways of bringing culture out into the open air. So for example, we had Philharmonic on the back of a pickup truck, right? Mm. That drove around different parts of the city. You didn't know where it was going to be so that it wouldn't count as a gathering, mm -hmm. but they would, you know, drive the pickup truck, start playing and, and people would take it, you know, take advantage of that. And then our cultural folks just have stepped up in amazing ways to, you know, help boost spirits. So for example, again, actually Lincoln Center again, set up a uh, food pantry, outdoor uh, food pantry, so people could come and pick up food and had the thoughtfulness to have classical music playing as people came wow. to, uh, to get their food, and which was also just such a statement about the dignity of what was going on. And so we've really tried um, to find ways to get resources to them and to keep them involved. Obviously, we have opened some museums are open with a ticket, you know, with a, uh, mm -hmm. a ticket that you have to buy in advance at a very reduced occupancy level. So that's helping our wildlife conservation society, our botanical gardens, those kinds of things have were able to open. Mm -hmm. so that was thank goodness. But the theaters have been, um, you know, just the hardest to try to solve for. We are very, very hopeful that we can get enough vaccine out quickly so that they can start to come back. Um, certainly, we hope mm -hmm. end of summer, early into the fall, mm -hmm. we hope that we will be able to start bringing them back. Again, they've been amazingly creative so that you can, you know, watch a live stream um, performance of some plays that have been produced by you know right. you you film this person and then you film this person then you film this person and you put them all together mm -hmm. or you know the the shed did an amazing production that was just a one person several people but but mm -hmm. one person at a time on stage and live streamed that so so we're seeing a lot of that we're seeing our filming come back which is wonderful the studios have been just amazing at keeping people safe and really working mm -hmm. with testing protocols and safety protocols. So lots more to be done, but we are making progress we'll and I am continue to be hopeful. We, we can't dissociate New York from that. Every time I come for a business trip, I try to go to Broadway and see something last minute tickets in the last four trips I had now a couple of years ago, each were stunning you know you just you can't again you can't associate them hey we can keep talking about urban fabric but we have to talk about housing and we have to talk about your career and we're going to run out of time so okay. talk about the and you're a houser so talk about the pandemic and the core issues around housing in the city and maybe how you've done so look the core issues around housing is that it's made housing so much more urgent, right? Mm -hmm. It's made housing right. stability so much more urgent and housing affordability as people started to lose wages or started to lose their jobs altogether. The amount of back rent that is outstanding is, is really so troubling. And it's troubling for those tenants. It's troubling for the buildings, many of which are small buildings that really can't absorb the kind of losses that we're seeing. We've been doing, um, the state has a moratorium in place against evictions that now runs until May. So that is, you know, keeping people in place, but obviously the bill is accumulating and how right. how to deal with all that is the, is the critical question. We do have a number of programs that we expanded and ramped up to help during the pandemic. We have a cash assistance program to help pay rent for people who might otherwise end up homeless. 
We provide lawyers to every tenant, uh, low-income tenant who faces eviction. We have been doing double duty to try to get every empty apartment that could be rented to somebody out into a person with a voucher or, or, mm -hmm. or some means of, of paying the rent. And then we are working uh, closely with the state right now to design the rent relief program using money that was in the last uh, federal stimulus and hopefully will be augmented in the next stimulus. So all that is critically important, but we also certainly double down on all that we do to now finance affordable housing because affordable housing is ever more urgent and ever more in demand. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, when the city was just being hit with every possible expense, personal protective equipment, ventilators, keeping the hospitals open, bringing doctors you know, back to work who were retired, so many expenses that the city had and all of a sudden our tax revenue, et cetera, um, falling through the, th right. through the bottom. So at the beginning of the pandemic, we had to pull back a lot of our capital spending. And that of course had a terrible effect in that you're, those are jobs for people. So, mm -hmm. and those are affordable homes that we're not being able to produce. We very quickly swung back in capital and doubled down on our housing production. Again, we were really laser focused on where is the best place to spend this limited capital. Um, so we spent it in neighborhoods that were hard hit by COVID, people of color, low income neighborhoods, jobs that would accrue to local residents because they were nonprofit developers who worked in the community. Mm -hmm. They were MWBE developers who worked in the community. And because we doubled down, even though we were in the middle of a pandemic, we ended up being able to move forward on almost 30,000 homes. Mm. So that's remarkable um, and a really a, an incredible tribute to my team right. that just worked day and night to, um, to make it happen. And we paid really close attention to who is it that the pandemic has shown once again, is most vulnerable. So 65% of the new homes that we financed are going for people who are at the lowest incomes. We, we produced record numbers of senior housing and supportive housing and housing for the formerly homeless. So we are firing on all cylinders to try to keep people in their homes and to try to provide more affordable housing, uh, new affordable housing and, and, and housing that will now become, mm -hmm. even though it's existing housing, it will, it will be subject to restrictions that keep it affordable um, and try to really bring more affordable housing to a wider range of neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. How has homelessness increased or not in the city during this period of time? And the, co the additional cost of homelessness versus the cost of an, of an affordable housing unit, I think, is ginormous, both in dollars and social cost. But talk about that for a sec. So tragically, we have seen some adult, single adult homelessness go up. Mm -hmm. We have seen family homelessness go way down. So our overall homeless population is smaller, mm -hmm. um, has been decreasing on a you know steady uh, decrease, but it's changed in composition. And so we are seeing, uh, you know, single adult, mostly single adult men, but also single adult women. We're seeing the numbers of those homeless increase, but we're seeing family homelessness decrease. And we're really doing everything we can to make sure that homeless families are being put into our public housing, our affordable housing. We went out at the beginning of the pandemic and asked our affordable housing developers, could you devote more of the affordable housing to homeless families? And many, many, many of them stepped up. And so we are seeing an increase in the placement of homeless families into buildings across the city. So we're making progress there. Mm -hmm. We need to make more progress on uh, the single adult 
population. <laughs> it's interesting as you're talking about all these things, you've been focused so much through the entire conversation on equity and thinking of the underspent and underserved populations. When we think of New York nationally, we think at two ends of the spectrum. And so much of our national discourse around New York becomes around luxury and about mm -hmm. Washington Square Park, not about the park in Harlem that is underinvested. And the headline in the New York Times today was about one of the thousand foot towers that blows in the wind and the $32 million homeowners aren't very happy. This probably doesn't get into your purview, but it's just interesting to mash those two things up together at the same time because it is the same city. It is the same city. One of the things that makes New York so interesting is how interspersed that all is. And But my purview is not... Uh, <laughs> You're not, not dealing with that one? About those, <laughs> the wind blowing that... Uh, I, there will be other ways of solving that problem. But, I would tell um, you, I was in someone's office. I think it was like Duff and Phelps or S&P or something. This is years ago when I was on Wall Street and they were right at the foot and, and it was in a high rise office building and I'm seeing this guy's office and his back was to the window. So I'm looking, I think at the Statue of Liberty or something. And it was a rainy, windy day and the building was swaying, something I've never experienced. And I got dizzy, faint and ready to puke. <laughs> I was just, oh, I didn't know what oh, to do with that. I can now imagine buying a house for a lot of money and go, ooh, I didn't think about that part. Uh, so let's pivot again in the conversation and talk about how you got here. And we'll have to tell this story in vignettes because we're going to run out of time. But there's three or four vignettes that I think I know about you. One is you grew up in a small town in Colorado. It was a uranium mining town. And I think your mom was the mayor. And land use issues were a big deal in your town. Tell us about that. So my town is called Natarita in southwestern Colorado. It uh -huh. was a uranium mining and ranching town. And there were an enormous number of land use conflicts because the ranchers wanted access to Bureau of Land Management, federal land. So did the miners. They wanted to be able to prospect on the BLM land. And so there was enormous conflict over that. There was conflict between the cattle ranchers and the sheep ranchers because sheep graze close to the land, close to the yeah. ground, and that ruins it for cattle. So there were enormous fights all the time about how our land got used. And I found that fascinating. I found it fascinating how do you make these decisions? I found it fascinating how emotional the disputes got. And it was my my first real understanding of how core place is to people's definitions of themselves. Mm -hmm. And so that just fascinated me from the time that I was old enough to think about it. And I started doing a lot more reading. And one of the sort of books that made a difference in my life, one of the many, was uh, Oscar Newman's Defensible Space, which mm -hmm. is about New York City public housing and how it wasn't designed in a way to give people a sense of ownership and mm -hmm. that that led to many of the crime issues and other other issues. And so I started to realize, well, this is a much deeper and broader problem and wanted to think more about that. So when I went to college, I was the first in my family to to finish college. We didn't have any money. I was able to go to college because I, I won a cooking scholarship. and <laughs> Cooking so, scholarship um, to college? Yeah. Okay. In Colorado, one of the big corporations was a corporation that no longer exists called Sigmund Meatpacking. They uh -huh. had the best bacon and all kinds of things. And they ran a scholarship contest, which was the normal grades and those kinds of things. But then at the end, you cooked a meal and you served it to a slate of judges and they ask you questions and that kind of thing. And my family was very poor. And so my job was to do the cooking for the family from the time that I was 12. Mm -hmm. And so I loved cooking and um, was apparently good enough um, to, to go to college on that money and, and working to put myself through. But one of my jobs in college was to work with tenants who were being pushed out by their landlord or having landlord-tenant disputes. And so I became even further fascinated by all these things. So 
that's how I ended up in land use. And, well, and, and then the college was Colorado, but law school was NYU. So my last year of college, I was studying journalism um, and I had a magazine writing class and my professor, one of those people who, you know, just unknowingly made a huge difference in my life, mm -hmm. a wonderful man named Derry Einan, had us write the, a story proposal for a magazine that we would like to work with. And I envisioned myself as being a sort of Ralph Nader. I wanted to be, you know, the, the person on behalf of tenants and on behalf of housing consumers um, that, you know, took on the problems there. And so I wrote a story proposal for Consumer Reports magazine, which mm -hmm. is what I thought I would like to work with. And Professor Einan said, hey, this is pretty good. Why don't you send it in? So I'm like, oh, why not? So I sent it and they called me and said, well, we, we don't take stories from elsewhere, but we have an internship program. Would you like to be an intern? And I'm like, sure, why not? When should I come? <laughs> of course, I had never gone anywhere. Right. So I went to New York, not knowing what the heck I was doing. And I lived in a wonderful place that still exists, the Webster Apartments for Women, which had been founded by the Macy's to, for their sales girls to keep them out of trouble. Uh -huh. And I was over on 9th Avenue and 34th Street and was safe and clean. And that's what enabled me to come to New York and be safe and fall in love with New York. And I'm looking at you, this is a Zoom call for our listeners, and I'm looking at your library behind you of books, and it looks like you have been there forever your entire life. It's all been collected. <laughs> but that move to New York from such a rural place in Colorado was fascinating to be such a New Yorker. But maybe most New Yorkers, half of New Yorkers are that story. Half of New Yorkers at least are that story. Okay, but... so then you go to NYU. And mm -hmm. We don't have to talk much about NYU, but uh, you, you obviously did well because you became a Supreme Court clerk. And I, I, I do want to hear about lucky. that. I had the incredible opportunity to clerk for Justice Blackman, mm -hmm. uh, who was just a, a wonderful, wonderful man. I'll just tell one short, Please. funny story. When I later started teaching at, back at NYU, Justice Blackman came to visit and give a lecture at, at the law school. And I had a little dinner party for him, for which I cooked, mm -hmm. right? But I got somebody from the law school to help me clean up and serve. And and he was asking me, well, how do you know Justice Blackman? And I said, oh, I, I clerked for him. But the person who I was talking to didn't know that world and thought that I said I cooked for him. So, <laughs> so the next day when I went to the law school, people were like, you cooked for Justice Blackman, <laughs> I said, no, nothing that nice. I just clerked for him. <laughs> but the wonderful part of that, there were many wonderful parts. I learned an enormous amount from him. But I also met my husband, Sue, who was clerking for Justice Marshall at that time. And uh, so we have now been married for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And our son is now clerking this year on the Supreme Court. Oh, congratulations. So, so um, it's a family affair. Now let's tie that into moving back to New York. I won't bore you with all the twists and turns, yeah. but basically I, I became a land use law professor at NYU. I taught land use, I taught property, I taught housing policy. And for the last more than 20 years, also ran the Furman Center for Real Estate and Urban Policy, which was a a research organization that really mm -hmm. tried to understand what differences do policies actually make and programs actually make? Do they work? Don't they? Why? Um, those kinds of things. And did a lot of, along with our public policy school, did a lot of work on trying to understand what makes better land use and housing policy. Mm -hmm. So from there, we pay a lot of attention at the Furman Center to what actually happens on the ground. Mm -hmm. So I certainly knew New York City's housing landscape and its land use landscape um, very, very intimately. And when I was asked by then Deputy Mayor Alicia Gwynn, who I think you've had um, yes. on the podcast as well, when I was asked by Alicia to become commissioner for HPD, or the Housing Finance Agency, and I wanted to, you know, put my mouth where all my studies were and really try to, to implement them, to put them into play. 
mm-hmm. and to try to make a difference in that way. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. In my search work, when I do work around housing finance and low-income housing, particularly around New York, almost everyone I've interviewed worked at HPD or HDC. And almost in any other city, if they had worked in the government, you would poo-poo it as not the right place to start. But in New York, it's the place where everyone really does get trained, and it's a very effective and incredibly powerful organization. Very high-quality organization, and people have enormous responsibility. They get thrown into high-level decision-making very quickly, and so it's a great training ground. Mm-hmm. And we have just people who are so dedicated who are and so smart about everything from, you know, how to design a rent relief policy to how to actually get a deal done right. um, and negotiate across the table with, you know, legislators, with bankers, with finance folks. It's, it's a really, really good experience. When we here in America these days think of government, I already said this, but I'll restate it, is we don't think of those large bureaucratic organizations as functional, A. And B, is public service or careers in government almost anywhere in our country has become disrespected, not respected. And HPD's been immune from that, maybe. I may be saying things that aren't quite true, and I'm exaggerating, but I think it's generally true. So how has it maintained that tradition or that level of excellence, if that's the right word? You know, I think that we've been very lucky that the commissioners at HPD over the years have been, you know, terrific people. I mean, Sean Donovan, who went on to lead uh, HUD and then, yep. and then OMB. But the giants of the industry, a lot of them uh, spent time either as commissioner of HPD or in one of the deputy commissioner type of roles. So we've been able to attract very high quality non-political, substantive, you know, leadership. And it feeds, you know, these things feed on themselves, right? When you have high quality people, you can attract high quality people. And when people know that their work is actually making a difference on the ground and that the world respects what it is that they do, that enables us to attract and keep some just amazing people. So... When I, you know, went to HPD, I said to Alicia, one of the things that I really care about is I know some of the the gaps at HPD. Mm-hmm. I know some of the things that right. haven't been sufficiently invested in, and those things have got to be fixed. I will leave HPD in better shape than I find it, and that's been the mantra, I think, of every commissioner. And so... I think it's it's an agency that's constantly driving towards excellency mm-hmm. and constantly driving towards creativity. You know, it's a management style. It's a culture that keeps moving forward, and we have to keep it going, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. When I started my career, I started as a lobbyist for affordable housing now in 1980s. This is a long, 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 long time ago. And the people who had worked in the Carter administration at HUD had been were in the process of leaving because Reagan administration came in, but th- there were a ton of lawyers, and the whole Washington D.C. housing establishment became were those lawyers who then went out into the industry, and many of them are still there. And it was one of those areas of the best and the brightest. And the same thing happened with Obama and Carol Galanti and other people and Sean and other people like that in that administration. And mm-hmm. again, I, I keep uh, all in the politics here, but. If we could bring public service back to that level on a more consistent basis, regardless of party, then we would have a much more functional society. Well, unfortunately, I do have to say that's getting harder and harder because, yeah. I mean, I have people who have been out in public hearings about parks, about affordable housing, who, you know, have their families threatened. Who, uh, it, So it's getting harder and harder because of the you know, the viciousness of the debate. And think about that viciousness of debate, but also transparency. So does social media then make it harder to take risks in government and behave in government day to day? Because you can be found quickly. Absolutely. Because you know that 
something that you've done is going to get into 144 characters and you're not going to be able to explain it in 144 characters. So you're going to be made to look stupid and not really have enough of a chance to be able to respond. And and that makes your job just a lot harder. Mm -hmm. And again, we started a few minutes ago, we talked about the appointed versus the elected versus the career people. And maybe you're in that appointed position that does feel safest to go for it. But for the others, that environment needs to be changed so that people can feel comfortable that they're not going to get mauled for just doing their job well and creatively. How do you do it creatively? How do you do that creatively to to assure people that they won't get mauled? No, I think how do the people in those chairs do their job creatively and have the concept of creativity not be a negative attribute to exist successfully through a career in government? (laughs) Look, I think one of the things there is you have to have a very strong value compass about Mm -hmm. what you're trying to achieve and not that good ends justify means, but when you're fighting against 144 characters, you have to be able to go back to the basic value scheme that you're trying to achieve and be able to communicate about it at Mm -hmm. that level, which is really hard. It's interesting. I've been wondering this for a long time and it doesn't work today, but it could. We could change the discourse just actually not that far of those values that we all agree on. Mm -hmm. And because there is that 60% of the value proposition that both Republicans and Democrats and people running against each other all agree. We need this. We need that. We need the other thing. We're having that. That's become so narrow because we're looking for wedges on which not to agree and to be able to yell at people versus, yes, you've moved the needle on this stuff that we all care about and it's going to but if this, it works better at city level than federal level from what I hear all the time. I hope so. <laughs> okay. So we should wrap up. I have two questions. One is, what haven't we talked about that we should, that these topics have made you think about that would be interesting to our listeners? You know, I think that one thing that the pandemic showed and that as I think about the folks like your daughter my kids coming Mm -hmm. into their career, that one of the things that they need to learn is your reach should exceed your grasp because it turns out that you can do a whole lot more than you think you can do. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that the pandemic, you know, showed us is, look, when push comes to shove, creative people can make it happen. Creative people can get it done. And you can do a lot more than you think is ever would ever be possible. And certainly as I watch my 29-year-old son, my 26-year-old daughter, and, and so many of my students, my former students, my, my team now, it's amazing how much more you can achieve than you think you can and how much more you might have available to you than you think it is going to be available. So... I think one of the most powerful things to remind ourselves is Mm -hmm. if you don't ask, the answer is automatically no, right? But Mm -hmm. if you ask, can we do this? Can we do more? Can we do even more than more? It often turns out that yes, you can. And similarly, when you're starting out in your career, be sure and ask because the answer might just be yes. And if it's no, that's no worse than never asking. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful and true advice. For someone, young person getting into the real estate business, now you put your NYU hat on and, and your government hat on, but what advice would you give to a young person getting into the industry? Your point of grasp is a really good one, but you know where maybe where should they focus? How do they find their way? How do they begin a career in this industry? So look, I think that if you want to do housing work, there are all kinds of avenues in, right? You can work for a nonprofit who does advocacy work or community organizing work around housing issues. You can work for the legal aid or legal services or lawyers who help tenants. You can work for in finance in the banks or in, in the financial firms that help to finance affordable housing in, with a developer who either for-profit or not-for-profit or you can start there. So there are so many different ways into the industry. And it really depends, I think, on whether your focus, whether what gets you out of bed in the morning is policy issues or 
the craft of a deal, being able to put it together, being able to negotiate and find solutions, mm-hmm. whether you're, what you're interested in is, is really more the, the on the ground working with the people who are going to live in that affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Um, it really depends on what it is that your personality um, drives you towards. But it relates back to the question of if, if you don't ask, because I think one of the key things is there's actually a lot more flexibility than I think people understand. And so I've had so many of my team come to me and say, I've done X, Y, or Z for so long and I love it, but I'd really like to do a little more of this or that. And, but it's not in my job description, but you know, find a way, ask and, and be creative about finding a way to learn a broader range of the business than just whatever entry point you came in on and really look for those opportunities to get the full scope. You want to know mm. from soup to nuts how housing comes together and what kinds of policy issues that get raised when you're putting those kinds of programs together. Everything from you know, how to use tax incentives to what role the application process plays in who actually ends up getting housing. So, you know, I think knowing what it is that interests you, mm-hmm. but pushing yourself to see the the entire spectrum and the, the breadth of the, the spectrum is really important. Hmm. It's interesting. It's, it's fabulous advice. I think of it all the time. I wrote down the word context because you do have to know the context from which anything fits in order to be able to do that well. So that requires breadth. And then the other interesting thing you said, and I talked to people about this all the time, is if you have the context of trying different things within any part of the industry that you're going to do, somewhere in there, you'll find that thing that speaks to you and speaks to your personality. You spoke about your personality and those unique gifts that you bring to the table throughout this conversation, particularly one that I share with you, Connector. And mm-hmm. But you don't know that until you get into the work world and start finding it. And then, then you find that place where you're making a bigger difference. Absolutely true. So this is wonderful. Hey, Vicki, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been delightful, full of wise stories. And thank you for all you've done through this this crucible of difficult time. Thank you. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices. And I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.